You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. TransLink is on the hot seat today, criticized over the way it handled an early morning fare dispute. The passenger, a young woman and colleague here at Global News, attempted to catch a bus around 2 a.m. after work when she was kicked off and left by the side of the road, even though she had a compass card. Grace Key tells us what happened. Catching the bus on a bright sunny day in Vancouver makes the commute fairly easy. But imagine getting kicked off the bus at 2.45 in the morning because your compass card is reading insufficient funds. I went to get on, scanned my compass card, and I kind of got the beep, 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 like insufficient fare. Um, so there's a security guard on the bus as well, and he's like, oh, so you have to pay the 285, or you can't ride the bus. Bailey offered to show her compass card receipt, but transit security wasn't interested. And I was like, so you don't care if I have to walk the rest of the way home in the middle of the night. He says, no. I got off the bus and I was really upset and I kind of had to just like take a couple minutes to calm down a little bit. With no cash on her, the 23-year-old was left stranded on the corner of Kingsway in Maine. Eventually, she was able to hail a taxi. TransLink has offered Bailey an apology, saying it's not their policy to leave passengers stranded at the middle of the night. Our policy in the evening on night bus is to issue a ticket or a verbal warning. Safety is really important to us, and that's why the night bus is there, is to get our customers home safe in, in the nighttime hours when things might be a little bit you know, more dangerous for walking alone, something like that. Bailey has a monthly pass, but it turns out her stored value was minus 45 cents. TransLink is investigating why the security officer refused her entry at 2.45 in the morning. That when I asked the security guard point blank, like, you don't care if I just have to walk home from here, not even knowing where I live. This bus goes all the way to Surrey. What if I lived in Surrey, right? He doesn't know. Grace Key, Global News. Well, keeping traffic moving is a key concern, especially when it comes to our bridges. Gridlock has become so bad, even a minor fender bender can throw the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge into chaos. Now authorities are working on what to do to clear crashes quicker. Ted Chernecki has more on the recurring headaches and some of the ideas being tossed around to ease the pain, Ted. Yeah, Chris, you know, you think it wouldn't be that difficult to find ways to expedite a minor fender bender on that bridge behind me, but apparently it is. But enough is enough. Various levels of local government have gotten together to find ways to shred some of the bureaucracy that's getting in the way. Delays right back into West Vancouver. Every feeder route to the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge is absolutely jammed with traffic. Same goes for the Lionsgate Even Bridge. without an accident, traffic on the upper levels is backed up every single day. There are hardly any good days and a lot of bad ones, like yesterday afternoon's rush hour. I'm as frustrated as everyone else. I was stuck in that stuff yesterday as well. It was lammed up past my house. Uh, so it's pretty frustrating, and I get it. The second narrows is at capacity, and with that much volume, accidents happen that much more frequently, three or four times a week. A simple fender bender with no injuries can add hours to everyone's commute, and that has to change and apparently will. We've assembled a, a group, including uh, Ministry of Transport, Ambulance, Fire, Police, and said, what can we do? 
uh, in advance of those improvements to improve this situation. In the next month or so, first responders will be able to, in some cases, call in a tow truck even before police arrive. And there'll be bigger tow trucks standing by because there's so much truck traffic now on the bridge. And they'll better coordinate response calls so that both North Vancouver and Vancouver don't respond to the same crash in the middle of the bridge. We're hoping that we can cut down that initial response time and clearing time from, from uh, 15 or 20 minutes to perhaps 5 or 10 minutes. We hope to in, improve the clearing time, again, from perhaps an hour uh, to something much less than that. It is by now abundantly clear that there is no easy fix to the bigger congestion issue. For six decades, previous governments have spent next to nothing on the North Shore to the point it is now crippling the economy. Really is time for investment in transportation, and I'd say specifically in transit to get to the North Shore, to link the North Shore with the rest of Metro Vancouver. Now, they have put uh, widened sidewalks on both sides of the bridge, and they're spending about $200 million realigning the Mountain Highway interchange north of this bridge. But fundamentally, until there is a viable public transit system, commuters will have no option but to keep driving. Chris, Sophie? All right, thanks very much, Ted. Charges have been laid against a Vancouver Island man for his alleged part in a cross-border drug smuggling operation. More than 100 kilograms of drugs, including cocaine, crystal meth and heroin, seized in the six-month-long investigation. Nadia Stewart has more on how it all unfolded on the high seas. 55 kilograms of cocaine, 47 kilos of crystal meth and heroin. Drugs smuggled up from California, destined for B.C., intercepted by law enforcement on both sides of the border. And it all happened on the waters between Vancouver Island and Washington State. During the course of the investigation, we observed a vessel from Canada meeting an open water with a vessel from the United States. Large bags were transferred from one boat to another. Investigators say this is where it all went down, just south of San Juan Island. The drugs were transported by boat from Washington State to Vancouver Island. Unbeknownst to the two men arrested, they were being watched. In this case, they believe that uh, their uh, actions would be undetected if they did it on water. Um, That, of course, was not the case. William Milton Barnes from Saanich is facing 11 drug and weapon-related charges. The 51-year-old man is due back in court next week. Police say that William Barnes was initially charged back in February 2017, but because of the complexities of the investigation, we're only hearing about this now. Gary Horton from Washington State has also pleaded guilty for his role in this drug operation. Police say they are exploring any possible links to organized crime. Both Canadian and American personnel say the bust was a team effort, made possible by way of a little-known cross-border law enforcement program called Shiprider. When they are operating on the water, We have at least one U.S. officer on the Canadian vessel, at least one Canadian officer on a U.S. vessel, and it's under those authorities that we are able to to cross the border. Police say the investigation isn't over yet. It's possible there could be more charges laid. Nadia Stewart, Global News. And on the topic of drugs, the B.C. government introducing new legislation to restrict pill presses. The move is an attempt to crack down on the illegal production of potentially deadly drugs like fentanyl. John Waugh has more on how, if passed, the bill will help police get counterfeit pills off the street. It's a legal tool that's left a deadly imprint on this province. Pill presses imported into British Columbia are being used to feed the supply of fentanyl on our streets. 
costing more than 1,400 people their lives last year alone. They know that they're being used to produce pills that kill people, and they're getting away with it. But new B.C. legislation proposes to vet, track, and enforce the proper use of pill presses, making sure they're only used by legitimate businesses like pharmacies and health product producers. There are some legitimate reasons to bring these in, but we want to make sure that there's proper vetting. And then likewise, people that are bringing them in, that they're not being resold. Deputy Chief Mike Sear of the Abbotsford Police is also the chair of the Drug Advisory Committee for the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. He says B.C. is taking a stronger approach the import rules introduced by the federal and Alberta governments in 2016. That was good for importation, but it really didn't address some of the concerns we had with regards to domestic sales. And the penalties in B.C. will be even tougher than in Alberta. On the first offense, the fine is $200,000. A second conviction comes with a $350,000 fine. Any subsequent conviction is a half million dollars and six months jail time. Every step we can take to make it more challenging for drug dealers is certainly a step in the right direction. The public safety minister hopes to move the legislation forward this session. These changes will assist police in doing their job in uh, getting them uh, out of the market. After all, with the capability of pumping out thousands of deadly pills per hour, law enforcement says the illegal use of pill presses can't be stamped out soon enough. John Hua, Global News. Well, tomorrow, the provincial government will unveil legislation on how it plans to regulate the use of marijuana in B.C. once it becomes legal later this year. Our Keith Baldry has managed to uncover some of those details for us tonight. Keith, what have you learned? Well, basically, we're going to have three bills in front of the House. Very unusual. This is a pretty weighty matter, and it's going to be amending up to 18 different pieces of existing legislation. I'll tell you, legalization stretches far and wide through all parts of society, whether it's motor vehicle driving, residents and tenants rights and such. Here's a number of things that have been announced, including some other new ones. First of all, the retail stores will be a mix of public and private stores. The government will own some. Private operators will operate ones as well. But liquor stores will not be selling cannabis. 19 years remains the legal age, same as the legal drinking age. Municipalities will have control over the outlets. In fact, they can refuse to have any outlets at all. Richmond has been talking about that uh, for some time. And liquor, the liquor distribution branch owned by the government will be the distributor of cannabis. So the government does have a major role in the distribution. Mike Farnworth telling me people really don't have their heads around how big a deal this is. But he also talks about how long a time it's going to take to unroll the whole thing and have a system up and running. Here's a solicitor general. It is going to take, in my view, a good two or three years before we finally get to see the kind of system uh, that's fully developed, but also deal with a number of the issues that uh, we're going to have to deal with. Now, nothing really changes tomorrow, even with the introduction of the bill, Sophie. We still don't know the date of legalization. Farnworth expects legalization will finally be in law sometime in the fall after it's passed in Ottawa. All right. I'm sure we'll be talking to you a lot tomorrow. Thank oh, you, I think Keith. so. Okay. Well, more tonight on the arrest of two Metro Vancouver area police officers in Cuba. A VPD officer is accused of sexually assaulting a 17-year-old Ontario girl near Veradero. Romina Dea explains what we're learning about how the Cuban court system works and the officers still stuck in the country. Forty days and counting. Two B.C. police officers remain trapped in Cuba, their passports seized. 
cualquiera que sea, perseguible de oficio o Pedro Pablo Isla Canizares has 30 years experience as a civil lawyer in Cuba, a country where charges are only laid after an investigation is completed. The investigative body has 60 days to present the findings to the prosecutor. This can be extended depending on the complexity of the event and the investigative actions involved in the process in question. A 17-year-old tourist from Ontario came forward last month with allegations a BPD officer sexually assaulted her near the popular beach town of Varadero. A Port Moody officer is considered a key witness. Both were detained and released, but they can't leave the country. The officers are currently living in a monthly rental off the tourist beach strip. No charges have been laid. When it comes to sex crimes, sexual assault can be a crime of rape or a crime of lewd abuse. The investigator, the first thing he must do is to arrest the accused. Then he must run a health test on the victim. That is to say he must take the alleged victim to legal medicine if it's a rape because it's where he determines if there are sequels or signs that a violent act has taken place. Port Moody Mayor Mike Clay tells Global News the family of the Port Moody officer has been to Cuba to visit without any problems. Clay says while the officer is distraught over his circumstances, he's confident that if he's treated fairly, he will not be found guilty of any crime. The Canadian consulate in Varadero previously told us it can't comment on the case because of privacy laws in Canada. The alleged victim has apparently returned to Ontario. Sources say two VPD members were in Cuba recently to check on the officers. Vancouver police not releasing any additional information. Romina Dea, Global News. Now to Toronto, where we're learning new details tonight about the suspect behind a deadly van rampage that killed 10 people and injured many more. This as more victims are identified, as well as the police officer who single-handedly brought the suspect into custody without firing a shot. Here's Global's Alison Vushnik. These are the people who never came home. A single mother who just finished her first day working at a new school. A grandfather from Jordan visiting his family a grandmother and sports fan, a daughter who volunteered and worked in the area, and a passionate chef. And I hope the family will heal and everybody will heal. As the community mourns, stories of kindness are emerging. Bystanders performing CPR and reassuring the injured. One story that continues to define this tragic event and has gained worldwide attention is how the suspect was arrested. Officer Ken Lamb, despite being told by the suspect that he had a gun, made the arrest without firing his weapon. After witnesses shaking his hand. Hey, good job. At some point after that, Ken Lamb's father, David, says his son called him. Tell me, Daddy, everything's fine. You know, I uh, arrest you know, the uh, suspect. And now she meant, do you find anything? You no, know, I don't even find any shop. You know, I said, oh, good, you do a good job. David, who used to be a police officer in Hong Kong, knows his son's training was key. But still, every parent worries. I feel uh, proud of him to do a good job, you know, but I still, like the other fathers, I'm scared about it. And Toronto police are also concerned. They say Officer Lamb can't speak publicly for now because he'll have to be a witness. And they also want to make sure that he's not struggling with what happened. He decided to leave his job as an engineer 
in midlife to join this job. He, he believes he made a right decision. What can I do for this community? He, in fact, that he realized his dream. He did something for the community. New details are emerging about 25-year-old Alec Manassian, who has been charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder and 13 counts of attempted murder after a van he was allegedly driving struck pedestrians in North Toronto. This man was a former classmate of Manassian's. He says he struggled socially and would sometimes act like a cat. He'd like lick his hands and meow and purr and like rub up against you or hiss at you or try to bite you or act like he was trying to bite you carried himself like a cat. He also said he was a loner who rarely spoke. Now he's accused of a mass murder. Alison Vushnik, Global News. And an illustration created by Halifax cartoonist Michael Deatter is gaining traction on social media. The image depicts two hockey fans, one in a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey, one in a Humboldt Broncos jersey, sitting on a bench, arms around each other's shoulders. It's already been shared and liked thousands of times over. And then this cartoon by Gary Clement depicting how Constable Ken Lamb kept calm during his standoff with Manassian and how the city of Toronto carried on. But first, it's been talked about for decades and finally downtown to downtown flights between Vancouver and Seattle are now a reality. The new Harbour Air Service isn't cheap. It's $370 one way. Aaron MacArthur explains who the pricey flights are aimed at. It's a float plane trip, 20 years in the making. Harbor Air has launched a new route connecting downtown Vancouver to downtown Seattle. No traffic, no border wait, door to door in just under an hour. This is not just a success for those who are going to fly back and forth from British Columbia to Washington, but it's a success to inspire us from all the things we can do that can build this innovation corridor. The flight's biggest booster was Microsoft. Tech companies with offices straddling Cascadia have been calling for an efficient way to get people back and forth. Microsoft and Amazon both have guaranteed seats for the flight. I think it's a great testament to what we can accomplish when government leaders on both sides of the border work together to bring people together. This convenience doesn't come cheap. A round-trip flight works out to be $740. It's about $200 more than a flight YVR to SeaTac. And if you book today, about 100 bucks more expensive than Vancouver to Bangkok. The company, though, is confident this service will be used. The old saying is, what's your time worth? And this will be right door to door. So we think we'll be fine. One of the big reasons the flight was stalled for so long was the reluctance of CBSA to station customs officers at the seaplane terminal. We literally did have to go to uh, the top of the rung, which was uh, Trudeau's office, and, um, and he was very helpful in getting this happen. There's been lots made of more robust connections between Vancouver and Seattle. High-speed rail is being studied, but that's billions of dollars and decades away. Air service, harbour to harbour, starts Thursday. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Well, just in time for the busy summer season, the B.C. tourism industry is slamming the NDP government for putting a huge segment of the economy at risk. As Jeff Hastings reports, it's worried that the government's push for an affordable, for affordable housing rather, will cost the industry millions. Many of these visitors to Vancouver are paying a special tax most of us don't encounter day to day. It's called the MRDT, the Municipal and Regional District Tax. You may have heard it referred to as the hotel tax. 
All told, the tax is about 50 million. More than half of that comes from some of the larger centres in the province, and the rest is spread between about 50 destination marketing organisations to be used for tourism marketing. A tax of up to 3% on short-term accommodation going into a local pool of money meant to bolster, to amplify tourism operations and opportunity in B.C. We live in a very highly competitive tourism world, and uh, we need to retain our competitive edge. The possibilities for MRDT money have been specific. Tourism marketing, tourism programs, and tourism projects. Now, thanks to the provincial government, a fourth option, affordable housing, and it's caught the industry off guard. So if you include housing, where does it stop? There is a letter circulating right now from the CEO of Tourism Vancouver imploring his industry colleagues to write to the finance minister to ask her to reconsider the decision. He's worried that tourism funding is at risk. What we are going to do is do enabling language so it will enable municipalities if they make the choice to utilize it. Would you like some dessert? Worker recruitment in tourist destination communities has been challenging thanks to limited accommodation and high prices. This commercial from Silver Star near Vernon, part of a creative marketing campaign. Tofino is given as an example of a thriving community struggling to house workers. There aren't places for people to live who work in the tourism industry, so they may be wanting to utilize that. Tourism in B.C. is a $17 billion a year golden goose. Industry members feel we have far too much to miss out on by changing a successful formula now. Jeff Hastings, Global News. So $80 worth of $2 bills, uncut. You can cut them up if you want to spend them, but why would you? A sneak peek tonight at the thousands of items, many of them high-end, on the block this weekend at the annual Vancouver Police Auction. Along with the usual collection of hundreds of bikes, police say there is a lot more jewelry for sale this year, including a $12,000 ring set and a Rolex. There's also sports equipment, musical instruments, clothing, electronics, and just about everything else you can imagine. The auction starts at 9 on Saturday morning. A pair of police vehicles were destroyed in monster truck fashion near Nanaimo. Check this out. When the driver of a stolen Dodge pickup was spotted this morning north of Ladysmith, RCMP say he drove directly at a police car and up onto its hood before driving away. Moments later, this one. The suspect driver encountered a second unmarked police vehicle and did the same thing, although this time the truck became stuck. The driver and his passenger took off on foot but were arrested minutes later. The two police officers had minor injuries. Yikes. Grocery shopping is never going to be the same thanks to technology making it easier than ever. If you haven't tried online grocery shopping yet, chances are you will soon. Our consumer reporter Andrew is here now with a glimpse into the future. Yes, and I'm looking ahead and I see a lot of us shopping online. Thanks, yeah. you too. Recently, we caught up with some industry experts at the annual Grocery and Specialty Food West Conference in Vancouver. And here's what some of them had to say about what consumers can expect when shopping for groceries. As mentioned in the future. Yeah. I wanted to do vegetarian lasagna. Uh-huh. I would click on that. Yep. And it lists all the ingredients. Shows you the ingredients. It'll give you the nutrition facts. Josh Ray is one of the co-founders of Shop Hero, a U.S.-based tech company that's giving independent grocers the tools they need to survive in a digital world. Even these stores that are in rural areas, uh, 
they're feeling that pressure. They're being attacked from all these companies, and, and we're giving them the tools to, to stay local. Pressure from major retailers who are trying to meet consumer demands, moving more and more away from walking up and down the grocery aisle to shopping online. You'll see gluten-free. According to the Food Marketing Institute and Nielsen, 70% of consumers are expected to be grocery shopping online by 2024. The Loblaws, the Walmarts, um, Sobeys have... have kind of created this new trend with their online offering and, and generated this awareness. And the, the retailers here in Canada have been asking that they're looking for a solution and we're trying to bring that. From home delivery to meal kits, industry experts say how food will be delivered in the future will be endless. 7-Eleven has an app now. Uh, in the States, they're testing it out, which is weird. But you can have a hot dog and a big gulp delivered to you. And just a few months ago, Amazon introduced its first automated grocery store at Amazon Seattle campus. No lines, no checkout. I think Amazon puts out some red herring test cases to try and distract the competition. But I think you'll see more self-serve, click-and-collect models where you can pick up your groceries. You'll see home delivery becoming more efficient in areas that have dense populations. And, and I, I, I think you'll see more efficient ability to shop. But it will take time. Last year, about 2% of groceries in Canada were sold online. Um, the U.S. was about 5%. Um, UK is way ahead of all of us. They, they've been doing this for about 15, 20 years. Um, but, but the Canadian market is, is quickly catching up. And as for traditional grocery stores, industry experts say they are here to stay, but they'll have to step up their game to stay competitive. It's not just about being profitable. It's also about meeting the needs of the customer. And if you have a consumer issue for me, there's my contact information at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thanks very much, Anne. How would you like to see that on your morning commute? The pilot of a twin-engine plane requests an emergency landing in Calgary but couldn't make it to the airport, landing instead on a busy street. The plane just missed a car, but thanks to the skill of the pilots, all six people on the plane walked away and no one on the ground was hurt. plane was slightly damaged. Mm -hmm. Well, for two decades, he terrorized California with 12 murders and at least 50 rapes. Tonight, about 40 years after the first attack, California police say they have finally caught up with the Golden State Killer, a 72-year-old former cop. Tonight, a four-decade-old search for one of history's most infamous serial killers may be over. We found the needle in the haystack. Police announcing the capture of 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo, a man they say is the elusive Golden State Killer. D'Angelo was arrested in Sacramento overnight. It's believed the crimes were being committed while D'Angelo was a police officer at two California police departments. Investigators say discarded DNA evidence led to the capture. We are committed, we are determined, and we will, God willing, hold this man fully accountable for his crimes. The killer, also called the original Night Stalker or East Area Rapist, is believed to have planned and carried out at least 12 murders, 50 rapes, and over 100 home invasions during a reign of terror in the 1970s and 80s spanning California. I've just grown up with, with being the daughter of a murder victim. Debbie Domingo was just 15 when her mother Sherry and her mother's boyfriend Gregory Sanchez became victims. In 1981, the killer snuck into Debbie's home and bludgeoned both to death. We spoke to Debbie two years ago when the FBI reopened the case. I'd never lost anyone close to me before, and she was probably the 
the closest person to me. The case's profile had risen in recent years, thanks in part to the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark, penned by Michelle McNamara, late wife to comedian Patton Oswalt, who helped her finish her work when she died in 2016. This is insane. Uh, looks like they've caught the East Area Rapist, and if that's true, they've caught the Golden State Killer. So, uh, I think you got him, Michelle. A day countless families have been waiting decades to see, finally here. Well, the actor who voices the character of Apu on The Simpsons is offering to step down in the face of growing criticism of the character. Something that started decades ago and was applauded and inoffensive is now politically incorrect. What can you do? Well, the show itself addressed the controversy, but not to the satisfaction of people of South Asian heritage. They say the portrayal of the heavily accented owner of the Quickie Mart has led to bullying and self-loathing. The controversy began with a documentary film made by South Asian comedian Hari Kondabolu. Last night on The Late Show, Hank Azaria told host Stephen Colbert he's heard the criticism and hopes the show will make a change. So I, I'm perfectly willing and happy to step aside or help transition it into something new. I really hope that's what The Simpsons does. And it just, it not only makes sense, but it just feels like the right thing to do to me. Well. Some shocking video out of China tonight. We want to tell you right off the top that both the woman and the dog survived this. But take a look. Two women are walking in Guangzhou City when suddenly a large white dog falls two stories, landing on one of them. The woman is knocked unconscious. The dog apparently just runs off. The woman is in hospital with fractured vertebra. No one knows how the dog got into the industrial building or whether it fell or jumped or was thrown from the building. And another piece of surveillance video from China catches a pregnant woman doing something that's not very maternal after she gets hit by plastic curtains when a four-year-old boy runs into a restaurant. She decides to take out her revenge. As the boy leaves after getting some chopsticks for his parents, she deliberately sticks out her foot and trips him. The boy was taken to hospital with a bruise on his head. The woman reportedly apologized to the family at a police station the next day. In Health Matters tonight, Canada's Food Inspection Agency is recalling a brand of microgreens sold in B.C. for possible listeria contamination. The recall is for certain products from Greenbelt microgreens, including arugula, broccoli greens, and pea shoots. The varieties were sold in Whole Foods and independent grocery stores. The recall was triggered by the company and no illnesses have been reported. You can find a full list of products on our website, globalnews.ca slash bc. A little leisurely tobogganing near Squamish. After the forecast, we'll show you why it might not be for everyone. Watch out for the drop. <laughs> There's you'll a little what, hint for you. You'll, you'll see what we're talking about in a minute. Uh, okay, Christy's here. Yeah, memories of snow, just distant memories after a day like today. Some records, uh, record-setting temperatures. Set. That's right. We, we still have snow on the local mountains. Picture perfect day out there, that's for sure. Here's a quick look at some of the numbers for you. Cooler by the water, 16. You saw that last night when I was by the water. It was a little cooler. But look at that. Langley, 27 degrees. And we weren't the only ones enjoying the beautiful sunshine today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Grouse Mountains resident Grizzly Bears Grinder and Kula were also today out there today oh. catching some rays. Uh, hibernation actually lasted 153 days this year, and so I'm sure that sunshine felt really nice. They are 17-year-old bears uh, that have been there since 2001, and they were found orphaned in the interior. Nice to see them out in the sunshine. Now, it is spring-like right across the province right now, uh, just breaking double digits and through the east, but look at Winnipeg at 20 degrees, but we were the warmest across the country, and Squamish gets the uh, prize at 27.8 degrees. Canada's hotspot, boy, the the thing that I find really incredible about this number, not only is it 12 degrees above average for this time of year, it's the range in temperatures throughout the day. So last night, they dropped down to 5 degrees, and they warmed up to 28, a 23 degrees spread. I think that's incredible. Maybe I'm a bit of a geek, but I like that stuff. All right, so yes, Squamish broke a record at nearly 28 degrees. So did Chilliwack, nearly 27, Trail 24, and Bella Coola 24. Incredible conditions, and tomorrow will be even hotter, everyone. Here's a look at your numbers for tomorrow. So straight sunshine across the region, upper teens and through the central interior, mid to upper 20s across the south. Plenty of sunshine and we'll see a range as always in Metro Vancouver near the water, 18, 27 further inland, a range in the Victoria region up to 23 away from the water. Friday is also going to be warm but not quite as warm. We'll start to see cloud later on and we may even see rain Friday evening. That is your weekend everyone. It will be tough to handle compared to the sunshine we've been in join but it looks like we may rebound next week with more sunshine and i'll leave you with this beautiful shot wanda saying oh finally uh kamloops is starting to come alive oh beautiful you're right there so are out and everything i'm fine thank you sorry for interrupting (laughs) you know it's the pollen it's the pollen. It's the pollen, yeah. Sure. It was the power of suggestion, actually, looking at that photo. Yeah. Blossoms on the tree. <laughs> Set you off. A Squamish man who goes by the online name Treehouse Mike is being featured on the GoPro Awards YouTube channel for some extreme tobogganing. That's pretty good. Mike, who is a base jumper, built himself a custom sliding run, and uh, the video pretty much speaks for itself. Here it goes. Feeling it now, buddy. Yeah! His custom run obviously is at the top of the Stowamis Chief, so that's about a 700 meter tobogganing run, although technically he left the toboggan behind, as you can see, attached to a rope, and Mike lands safely. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, this is right. Not your average kid's. uh, I'd never do it, but I'm impressed. So there's uh, some kind of hockey game going on right now, apparently. (laughs) Just before we get to sports, a high school golfer in Michigan has become an internet sensation by learning the hard way how protective Canada geese can be around their nests. Show Isaac Cooling (laughs) being knocked to the fairway, sending his clubs flying. Photographers who get too close are also given a warning. The golf club has roped off a large area and posted those warning signs. He will chase you. I might be wrong, but I think there was a goose or a bird at Mayfair Lakes in Richmond that used to chase people. I might be wrong, but it's. I remember that. It's not out of the realm of possibility. It might have been an urban myth. I'm not sure. (laughs) Oh, hey, the only game seven of round one is the one series that everybody thought would go seven games, the evenly matched Bruins and Maple Leafs, as Toronto tries to keep both Canadian teams alive in the playoffs. Oh, and these two teams don't like each other. Kreitchi and Anderson 
going at it here. 1-1, Patrick Marlowe, the old guy in the Leafs, has one goal. Make it two. 2-1 at that point. And then a Langley kid gets involved. Danton Heinen, ECHL grad. 2-2. It was 3-3. Bruins on the power play when... Oh, wait a minute. i got to show you this. Look at this. Marshan ducks. Ooh, Morgan Riley takes it. It's a good thing that thing was fluttering. It was still going fast, but if it had come in straight, that could have been much worse. Morgan Riley kept on playing. Speaking of BC boys, Morgan Riley. Here we go. Kasperi Kapanen beats out Brad Marchand. This is shorthanded with the move. But Tori Krug is tied it early in the third. It's 4-4. Toronto, Boston. Toronto's other team, well, they have a few going tonight. Raptors against Wizards in game five of this series. It's tied 2-2. Bad pass. John Wall. Easy dunk to Mar DeRozan. He had uh, 32 points in this one. Wall is a force, though, despite that giveaway. 26 for him. Toronto needed a good fourth quarter. They got it. And DeLon Wright was the key guy. Finished up with 18 points off the bench. Raptors now lead the series 3-2. Game 6 is in D.C. 20 years ago. Byron Munich, Real Madrid. First leg of their Champions League semifinal. Munich scored first. Then Madrid tied it. Then they won it. Marco Asensio, that's the winner, and game two will be in Real Madrid's part. Johnny Moonlight sounds like a name from West Side Story or some sort of 1950s doo-wop singer, but it's one of Canada's best ever rugby players. I won't just say rugby sevens, but 15 sevens, you name it. He has decided to retire to take a job as a fireman in Pickering, Ontario. Here Yamabate Skelton on the inside. And now There will be no more monstrous gallops from John Moonlight. Canada's Rugby Sevens captain calling it a career following a decade's worth of powerful tries. A career that has Hall of Fame written all over it. It was a real pleasure to be able to play with you and uh, really enjoyed watching you on the Seventh Circuit. Um, hell of a captain, hell of a player. Still hasn't been a rugby club anywhere in the world I've been involved in that doesn't know the name John Moonlight from watching the Seventh Circuit and that's just a testament to how good of a player you've been and how well you've represented the jersey. Cheering for John Moonlight in Canada was easy. Moonlight, one of those physical specimens combining speed and size. A player who could hand off the ball, run with it, or tackle opponents at will. And he did it well starting off in a traditional 15s jersey before transitioning to the quicker Rugby 7s. Um, it's been a pleasure watching you do amazing things both in the 15s and 7s. And honestly, there's no one who works as hard and is as determined as you are. So it really was awesome to see you have such an amazing career. Man, what a huge, what a huge spot to fill on the team now that you're, you're out. And, uh, you know, I just want to thank you for everything you've done for this team and you know, rugby in Canada. And, uh, man, it's been a pleasure playing with you. What's a handoff from Big Johnny Moonlight? Moonlight leads the pitch as Rugby Canada 7's all-time leader in caps. He put down 116 tries in 65 World Series tournaments, three Commonwealth and two Pan Am games. That's why the tributes for him keep pouring in. I'm sure you'll be as big a success um, in the rest of your life as you've been in the, your rugby career. You've been a fantastic servant for Rugby Canada. And it's been a real pleasure and honour for me uh, to have the chance to coach you. One of the greats in my book, no matter who I uh, measure you against. So well done. Well done indeed. Jay Janowar, Global Sports. 
and one of the great names in sports. Absolutely, yeah. Ah, love nice it. Nice tribute. Thank you, Squire. You're welcome. Perhaps no one symbolizes Humboldt Strong more than the injured young man who spoke to reporters about his future today. 19-year-old Ryan Strzeczynski was paralyzed from the chest down in that tragic bus crash. And while doctors are telling him he might never walk again, he's vowing to prove them wrong. You know, I just say, you know, you can get through this, you can do it. So that's pretty, pretty much the biggest challenge. A challenging and long road to recovery. But for Humboldt Broncos player Ryan Strzeczynski, there is no other option. Pain is, you know, temporary. Um, so that's what I just keep in the back of my mind. And Despite being told he may never use his legs again, Ryan is determined as ever. Hoping one day to get to that point where I be able to walk again, you know. I've, uh, some people have said I, I won't be able to, but, you know, I kind of want to prove them wrong. And, you know, each day just do something more and more, you know, sit in the chair longer, uh, try and sit up longer. An uphill battle no one anticipated he would have to face. The Airdrie hockey player was paralyzed when his team bus was struck by a semi-truck. 16 people were killed, 13 others injured. And all of a sudden I heard a, a scream from the front of the bus and a semi-truck pulled in front of us and that's all I remember. I kind of blacked out. My first instinct was to get up and you know try and help, but I uh, couldn't, move it, couldn't move my body, so it was terrible. It's still unclear what happened that day. RCMP wouldn't comment on Ryan's version of events, saying the case is still under investigation. No charges have been laid. For Ryan and his hockey family, they're just taking it shift by shift. We're still in the first period, fourth shift in, so we still got a full game to go. Yeah, I'm trying to pursue maybe a career in sledge hockey, setting those challenges and exceeding people's expectations. Krista Dow, Global News. Wow. wow. He's incredible. He sure is.